0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Manish Rath. I'm Manish Rath. We are grateful to all of you in the OSHA 3030 community for participating. I think that a large number of people have logged in by web and are still in the process of getting their audio uh, by telephone. So as we wait for them to dial in, uh, it's important to – Remember that uh, that the OSHA 3030 is a program that's done every 30 days, uh, in about 30 minutes, and updates you on uh, the latest, most impactful developments in occupational safety and health law. Our topic today is the DC Circuit decision that came out in September and was finalized uh, in a denial of rehearing in December uh, on OSHA's reinterpretation memorandum on the process safety management retail exemption. I'm fortunate to be joined today by my partner and friend, Larry Halperin, here at the Keller and Heckman Studios in Washington, D.C. Larry, thank you very much for joining us. Thank
1: you, Manish. Pleasure to be with you today.
0: Uh, Thank you and welcome. And welcome to all of you at the OSHA 3030. Larry Halpern and I am Manish Rath here at Keller & Heckman. More about us can be found on these slides as well as at khlaw.com. The other thing I'd say is, in addition to the OSHA 3030, which has been an important source for thousands by now, literally thousands of safety and health professionals and in-house counsel on the field of OSHA law, in addition to the topics that we cover once a month, we also Uh, Let out news bits on Twitter and on our website and on LinkedIn. Our website and the entire library of prior OSHA 3030s can be found at khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. Larry, you, me, David Sarvati, and several others here at Keller & Heckman have been doing this for over three and a half years. So this is about the 41st episode of the OSHA 3030, and there are 40 uh, OSHA 3030 episodes that are on this website, both of the slides and the audio for anyone to, to review some of the most impactful OSHA law developments in the past three and a half years. I think that's a great resource for the legal community and law, health uh, lawyers as well as uh, safety and health professionals on the corporate side.
1: It's been a great learning experience for all of us.
0: <laughs> for all of us. And, uh, you know, our colleague David Servati said, and I'll go back to that slide, uh, when we started this program three and a half years ago, never underestimate OSHA's ability to give you uh, new and fresh topics to talk about every 30 days. He's proven right. I'll call that the Servati maxim and, or Servati's law, and it's proved correct. We've had no end of topics. I'm I'm running out of dates to talk about them. Uh, and to that end, let's talk about today's topic: process safety management uh, and the retail exemption. This is really not a topic today about of safety management. It's a topic about OSHA rulemaking in general, and I think that the example that this particular memorandum provides us is what's interesting. So we're going to give a background about the retail exemption under process safety management and OSHA's memorandum reinterpreting its position about the retail exemption, but from there we're going to talk about what makes this story really interesting, which is the decision that comes out of the US Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, sometimes called the D.C. Circuit. Now, that decision is what's so interesting about OSHA rulemaking and interpretations generally. Uh, And so we'll talk about that decision and its implications for OSHA enforcement and interpretations going forward. And from there, as we always do, Larry, I think you know we try and be very practical in these programs and give people practical takeaways that they can take back to their uh, in-house counsel programs or safety and health programs And so we'll talk finally about what employers should do. Uh, In addition to the topics that we talk about every 30 days, we also post on Twitter uh, a little bit here and there, almost on a daily basis, and that can be found at Rathmonish if you are a Twitter follower. So please uh, subscribe uh, or join or whatever the expression is in Twitter sphere about uh, about joining or or linking up to that channel. Uh, I've just started, so that's only about a month old. Uh, with that said, we're also posting from time to time on our LinkedIn web page at Keller and Heckman Workplace Safety and Health. Uh, is that the right name of it, Larry? I think that sounds right. So with that said, let's talk about the uh, OSHA PSM retail exemption. So the process safety management r- uh, rule was issued in 1992, and that is a rule that essentially goes to the safe practices for Uh, in a nutshell, uh, highly hazardous chemicals. And that's found at uh, Section 1910-119 in the OSHA standards. Uh, In the preamble of that, let me back up and say, on the face of the rule itself, in Section 119, OSHA carved out an exception from the PSM rule for retail facilities. What is a retail facility that would not be subject to this rule? Well, in the preamble, the, the agency s- explained the reason for the retail exemption, uh, stating that they thought that when you looked at retail facilities, you're looking at chemicals that are found in packages, and thus, because they're containerized in small volumes, large releases of a highly hazardous chemical are simply less likely. And so they're not really the primary focus for the agency when they promulgated this rule. But within the same year, in fact, within a couple of months, they issued an interpretation letter defining the expression retail facility. That is the first utterance by the agency that specifically defines the term retail facility. And in that interpretation letter, they define the term retail facility as any establishment at which more than half of the income at that facility is derived from direct sales to the end user. So while they explained the reason for the retail facility exemption, from the PSM rule as being that small packages don't really make for a large risk. Nevertheless, they defined retail facility based on what we'll call the 50% rule. More than half the income is obtained from direct sales to end users. Let
1: me introduce one thought here that really carries all the way through and now is more relevant than it has been in the past. In theory, OSHA's got an office regulatory analysis which interprets the standard well enough to determine what it's going to cost and how many facilities are covered, if OSHA does its job properly and industry forces it to do its job properly, OSHA would have identified through that analysis how many retail facilities in a sense were probably exempt because they would have fallen into that category and they wouldn't have been included in the number of covered facilities and in another case before the Supreme Court uh, judge Sotomayor actually ignored that when she said that basically interpreting a standard later is no different than reinterpreting it the first time because there wasn't an interpretation to begin with. She overlooks the fact that there is one theoretically at the time the standard's adopted, otherwise, the agency could never determine whether it was feasible in the first place. Go ahead.
0: So. So all of this takes place in 1992 in the span of a couple of months. And as you say, Larry, these are virtually contemporaneous utterances from the agency that promulgated the rule in the first place, thereby making them relatively reliable uh, sources or indicia of what the agency meant when it used the expression retail facility. Let us fast forward from 1992 to April 17, 2013. In the early morning hours before dawn, an enormous explosion occurs in a small town, West Texas. The name of the town is West in Texas. It's actually in East Texas, I believe. And that explosion occurs at a fertilizer storage facility. It is a facility for storing fertilizer, specifically ammonium nitrate, and for distributing it to end users, farmers. And this explosion is so large that it includes uh, 150 buildings that are damaged in the nearby environs. Uh, 15 people die in this explosion, and it results in 160 additional injuries. Rising out of that explosion, the president, President Obama, issues an executive order And in that executive order, amongst other things, he directs the Department of Labor to identify any changes that are necessary in the process safety management standard with specific attention to be focused on the retail exemption. The U.S. Department of Labor, takes specifically OSHA, takes this executive order, which, again, directs them to identify changes that are necessary, and it goes ahead and it reissues an interpretation.
1: Uh, Let me add one a, thing here yeah, too, Larry.
0: Go ahead.
1: Somebody can check me on the facts. My recollection is that there was a sufficient amount of anhydrous ammonia on site for that site to have been covered by the process safety management standard, except for the fact that it was sold retail use, and therefore, uh, because it was retail use, it was exempt from the standard. Now. Ammonium nitrate would not have been covered by the standard, but the question is, if you had anhydrous ammonia on site, then the potential interaction between the ammonia and the ammonium nitrate would have been something that would have been taken into account in the process hazard analysis.
0: And that's a key point for its understanding uh, not only the size of the explosion, but its potential applicability to process safety management or coverage. So... In March of 2015, the, there's a decision that comes out, Perez versus Mortgage Bankers, uh, overruling a prior longstanding decision, Paralyzed Veterans. And Perez versus Mortgage Bankers essentially says that an agency that has issued an interpretation of one of its own rules can later change its interpretation. And in fact, in that case, went in the exact opposite direction. That was a case inter, uh, where the Department of Labor was interpreting – a a section of the Fair Labor Standards Act that goes to exemption from overtime rules under the Fair Labor Standards Act and whether or not a position at a bank called a mortgage banker would indeed be exempt from overtime. And originally the Department of Labor had said that these were exempt positions and then suddenly they changed their opinion and said that these are non-exempt positions. And when sued, uh, the court said, look, you can change – you, the agency, can change your opinion from time to time. Just understand that that idea that the court's deference to the agency is affected by the vacillation by the agency. Whatever agency deference the court would have afforded may be lessened by virtue of the fact that the agency has now – essentially flip-flopped on its former position. So perhaps emboldened by the mortgage banker's decision, OSHA issues in July, specifically on this question, July 22 of 2015, uh, a memorandum. And within a 30-day period, they issued three memoranda relating to the PSM standard. One of them dealt with this, the retail exemption. The other two dealt with the idea of a 1% threshold for the definition of a highly hazardous chemical, and the other uh, redefined what are the kinds of things that could qualify as generally recognized good engineering practices or Ragaget. And so with that said, these three memoranda come out, uh, all of them redefining or reinterpreting existing interpretations that were already out there uh, under the process safety management rule. So each of those three memoranda attracted the uh irritation or annoyance of specific industries that were directly affected by it and they all related uh somehow to to three different lawsuits. Uh let me talk about the retail exemption memorandum. Uh what OSHA said was look, this idea that more than half of the sales from that facility or the 50% test uh has to go to end users uh that's that's not going to be the definition anymore. That was directly contrary to our original intent anyways, because if you look at the preamble, you'll remember that the preamble said uh, that it's small containers that lessen the risks associated with uh, process safety management. And so we're going to change this, and now we're going to say that the retail exemption only applies when you're looking at uh, small, small packages, small containers the, we, we hereby rescind all prior interpretations, uh all prior memoranda effective immediately, and including this fifty percent test. Now what we want to do is just focus on on the small container, the small uh packaging. And we're gonna give as a concession to the regulated community, we're gonna give six months before we enforce so that uh employers Who were previously covered under the exemption can now do what they have to to start complying with the PSM rule. And that included, OSHA estimated, just under 5,000 sites that used to enjoy the PSM exemption that now had to gear up and start complying with PSM.
1: Right. So regardless of what the merits were of adding additional sites to the coverage, I think the general sense was it was outrageous for the agency to go ahead through a reinterpretation rather than opening the rule up for notice and comment rulemaking and explaining why it felt there was justification for expanding the scope of the standard.
0: So various groups sued on each of these three memoranda. On this particular memoranda, the retail exemption memorandum, uh, the suit was bro- that was brought was brought by the Agricultural Retailers Association, a very long-standing trade association representing agricultural retailers. It's been around for many decades, Uh, as well as the Fertilizer Institute joined in that suit and a number of specific companies uh, that may or may not have been members of those groups uh, collected to bring suit. This suit was brought in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. Uh, They essentially asserted in their challenge, hey, if OSHA wanted to reinterpret an interpretation that's been around since 1992, it needed to go through notice and comment rulemaking. You can't just keep reissuing interpretation memoranda anytime you want and engage in rulemaking through the use of interpretive memoranda. If you wanna go through rulemaking, you gotta go through the rulemaking process, which at the minimum includes notice and an opportunity for comment. Okay, so that was the essential argument from the Agricultural Retailers Association. OSHA's response was, no, no, this memorandum is merely an int- interpretation. It is not a standard, and there's not a revision of the standard. It is an interpretation of an expression in the standard, the expression being retail facilities. So we have a right to interpret this statement in the rule uh, to give clarity to it anytime we want, and we can change that interpretation if we have to. If you look at the Administrative Procedures Act, uh, the agency can issue an interpretation anytime at once and does not need to undergo rulemaking. And m- I think that what motivated them was mortgage- the mortgage banker's decision, which held that uh, an agency issuing an interpretation under the Administrative Procedures Act can change that interpretation later on without having to go through rulemaking.
1: And then there are some general principles about lack of notice and then a detrimental reliance, for example. With with the mortgage bankers, you you might say there were some pricing issues that were built into the system that there was some reliance on, but in the case of this – You're talking about potentially making engineering controls and all kinds of other changes to the operation of a facility which were not contemplated back in 1992 when these facilities were either established or continued in operation. So the court certainly is going to look at whether there's detrimental reliance to the point where it's inappropriate to to reinterpret a rule. And with respect to the issue of lack of notice, well, the agency thought they would simply cure that by giving everybody six months to come into compliance which just shows you what it really was, a rule on another name, because they didn't actually change regulatory text and therefore said it was just an interpretation rather than an amendment.
0: Yeah, that's right. Uh, And the court, the D.C. Circuit, goes through great lengths to first decide and determine what it was looking at in the social memorandum. And it said, look, if we're looking at a regulation, I think the first thing that they had to do was determine whether or not they were going to interpret the right to challenge this under the Administrative Procedures Act at all. Because as you say, Larry, the argument OSHA made was essentially hinged on jurisprudence derived from the Administrative Procedures Act. And it's clear on the face of the Occupational Safety and Health Act that if somebody wants to petition to challenge a rule then they must go through the procedures called for or the rights granted under the Occupational Safety and Health Act, not the Administrative Procedures Act. And there, there's a clear dichotomy between regulations of any type and specifically regulations that rise to the level of the standard or anything else that might rise to the level of the standard. Uh, standards, safety and health standards, are indeed governed by the OSH Act under Section 655. There... The challenge a uh, methodology m- brings a petitioner before – or a petitioner must bring himself before the U.S. Court of Appeals. Uh, and the standard for challenging it is whether or not uh, a standard went through rulemaking. Uh, so the difference between the, – so the court next analyzes what's the difference between a regulation and a standard. Uh, a regulation is maybe something that's administrative in nature or procedural an example would be the gathering or collecting of information uh or procedures for how to inspect whereas a standard is something that deals with safety and health specifically and calls for the abatement of uh a safety or health hazard and it's not just the identification of a hazard or the gathering of information in order to identify hazards so so when you write when a a rule or an interpretation rises to the level of a standard that is it calls for the correction or abatement of a hazard, then it must go through notice and comment rulemaking. And the challenge to that standard is placed before the U.S. Court of Appeals for evaluation of whether or not it went through that proper rulemaking process. Larry? So I'd state that in a way that was clear for everyone. If if you're talking about a standard, which goes to the abatement of a safety and health rule, then it had to have gone through rulemaking.
1: Right. So the question was, is this particular directive, whatever you want to call it, directed at the correction of a hazard, specifically identifying a hazard, in this case something involving exposure to highly hazardous chemicals and catastrophic releases, it said, yes, this is a standard. Once it decided this is a standard, then it said, okay, then the way you adopt and amend a standard is through the provisions of the OSH Act, which calls for rulemaking, and there's no provision in the OSH Act that provides for interpretive rules. And they, they just jumped, I mean, they shot right to that end point and didn't talk about the uh, mortgage banker's case at all and said, this is a standard, there's only one way to adopt a standard to so notice and comment rulemaking under the OSHA Act. That wasn't done. Therefore, this is void and valid.
0: That's an interesting point you're making, Larry, because the uh, the folks at OSHA argued, look, this is uh, not a legislative interpretation. It's a regulatory interpretation, and so it doesn't need to go through rulemaking. And the court, the D.C. Circuit said legislative interpretation versus uh, uh Regulatory interpretation, you're, you're talking about the APA. That's a dichotomy that exists within the APA. The dichotomy that exists within the OSH Act is unique. It doesn't exist in other agencies. There, the dichotomy is, is it a regulation or is it a uh, standard? And the standard is one that abates uh, or is designed to abate a hazard. Here, this, this retail facilities memorandum deals with including more people that used to be exempt, and taking the exemption away and now including them under the scope of the PSM rule. They now have to comply with the PSM rule in order to presumably abate hazards dealing with, as you say, Larry, highly hazardous chemicals. And so it's clearly a standard. Even if you have framed it or styled it as an interpretive memorandum, that doesn't matter. It still is a standard and therefore has to go through notice and comment rulemaking. That's the analysis. I haven't seen that analysis In other cases, I think that makes it an incredibly important decision. I think it's a landmark decision on this question because for the 21 years or so that I've been practicing, OSHA has, to all appearances, from anything I've seen, been of the belief that it can go out and issue interpretive memoranda, interpretive letters, compliance directives that essentially change the nature of compliance where it relates to the abatement of hazards. And I think Agricultural Retailers Association is a decision that will forever stand for the proposition that they now need to do way more than just promulgate a memorandum. They need to go through a notice and comment rulemaking. It's an incredibly impactful decision for that reason. Uh, what you, you've said here on this bullet is that the concept or the doctrine under paralyzed veterans, an APA case, has now been applied to OSHA cases, which is this that you can change your interpretations from time to time if you want as an agency, OSHA, but you must go through notice-and-comment rulemaking if you're going to do it. And I think that's what makes this such an important decision.
1: Right. So for standards, that is the rule. As we'll show in the next slide, the petition for sorcerary period is not expired yet, but I would imagine it would be a very interesting internal discussion here between the people who say – we can't live with this, and a Trump administration who says this is a great way to put a kabosh on abusive rulemaking processes and enforcement proceedings, which have gone on at OSHA and many of the other agencies for an extended period of time, where an agency simply arbitrarily decides it's got a better idea of what it meant to do 20 years before when it issued the rule, so it's going to reinterpret it.
0: That's right. So, so you're right, Larry. The the DC Circuit issued its decision, and OSHA asked for a rehearing. The D.C. Circuit denied its petition to re- be reheard. Then OSHA came back and asked the D.C. Circuit if it could be reheard en banc, which means the whole, all of the judges of the D.C. Circuit. Uh, in December, sometime around December 19th, the D.C. Circuit denied that. That, at the very latest, triggers a 90-day right. If OSHA really feels strongly about this, they can go to the U.S. Supreme Court and ask them to pick up the case. Uh, this was decided by a judge, Judge Srinivasan, who himself was a litigator, before the Supreme Court, probably 90 times when he was uh, in the solicitor's office, and uh, was I think maybe on the short list for the Supreme Court at some point when uh, Judge uh, Garland Merritt was was uh, was a contested candidate for the Supreme Court, and uh, and so I think his decision carries probably a lot of thoughtfulness and a lot of weight, and at any rate the statistical odds of a petition for uh, certiorari to be granted by the Supreme Court is closer to zero than it is to 1% uh, or 2%. So I don't think it stands much chance. But you're right, Larry, when you say that, that the time frame for them to file that petition hasn't expired yet. It expires sometime around March 20th, I think. 90 days mm-hmm. would be around March 20th. So this story could be uh, one that continues. And if so, Larry, we'll certainly talk about it again at the OSHA 3030 if there's any any changes to that. Uh, But for now, I think this is the law of the land uh, as to when OSHA has to go through rulemaking if it wants to issue something as simple as an interpretive memorandum.
1: Uh, Well, there's two issues there. This is a case where they had a well-established interpretation. What's not clear will be the scenario where, for whatever reason, either industry hasn't adequately participated – Oroch has decided it's going to hide the ball in the rulemaking process, and so its interpretation of a rule at the time it's issued is not clear. And then it goes on to issue an interpretation, and then the question is, well, there was no prior interpretation. Is this interpretation probably still going to get the deference it would normally get? So in a scenario where the interpretation is in the rulemaking documents, it's in the preamble, that's one thing. When it starts to be a scenario where you're issuing an interpretation, a letter of interpretation, years after the rule was adopted, but it's the first interpretation, OSHA probably gets deference, I'm I'm guessing, under this scenario. It's the future reinterpretations after that. So that leaves us, well, we'll see. The other scenario is now the agency is going to be inclined, potentially, not to issue any interpretations because then it doesn't have to get stuck with something it's later going to decide wasn't really what it wanted to say in the first place.
0: Yeah, Larry, yours is a very reasonable um, uh, interpretation of the of the decision. I will say that I, my, from my view, even the first interpretation, if it is a standard and deals with the abatement of a hazard, I think the D.C. Circuit has said even the first one has to go through notice and comment rulemaking. It's not a question. This decision is not a question of agency deference. It's a question of what process they had to use to get to that memorandum. And that part I think is is really interesting because, as we all know, it's much easier for the agency to just slip out a memorandum or a letter of interpretation or some other kind of interpretive document than it is for the agency to go through notice-and-comment rulemaking, which can be very difficult. Uh, it's a lengthy process. So okay. I think that's the real impact Could of the you
1: decision. If accept the principle, let's not assume that this letter of interpretation back in 92 was actually in the preamble to make it simple. Then the agencies adopted a position, And then it's changed it. So essentially it's amended the rule without notice and comment, even though it didn't change the text. If you have an ambiguous rule that has never been interpreted, I think the court is going to have to defer to the agency because it's not amending anything. It's just giving an interpretation, assuming the interpretation within was in the realm of reason. So like I said, right, there's, right. A, there's a concern now that if, There's not an adequate effort to make sure the agency is pinned down during the rulemaking process. They'll be free to interpret the rule how they like and you could end up in a sense, instead of a national office interpretation, with
0: enforcement
1: decisions all over the place and individual area offices deciding to do different things and no coordination at the national level.
0: That's right. So let's talk about what are the practical implications for employers and what employers should do. I will say as one last note, there's an irony to this whole story. Remember that all of this starts with an explosion in West Texas and an executive order issued by the White House as a result of that uh, asking the agency to deal with the process SD management standard. But in fact, in 2015, now remember the uh, White House memorandum uh, executive order was issued in 2013, but in fact in 2015, the ATF, the uh, Alcohol Tobacco Firearms, uh, issued its final investigation conclusion – which said that the explosion at West Texas, it concluded, was the result of a deliberate criminal act. Somebody had set off that explosion. And so it really had nothing to do with anything that the process safety management standard could have controlled for or is designed to control for. And it's unfortunate that all of this trouble was administratively was started by something that really had nothing to do with the administrative standard in the first place. Uh, with that ironic note, let's talk about what employers can do uh, to, in light of this uh, decision. But first, uh, a request for all of you who are registering and are enjoying the OSHA 3030 for many years: This program is complimentary to you. It's free. We don't charge a registration fee. But what we do ask is, when you get the email invitations, please, please take your email invitation and forward it on to at least three colleagues, particularly including your office of in-house counsel and colleagues in the profession of safety and health. Uh, So with that said, what can employers do? Well, I I really think, Larry, it comes down to two types of challenges to these interpretive memoranda. One is when they're issued, there is a window of opportunity to challenge the uh, memorandum if you believe that OSHA should have gone through notice and comment rulemaking. And that window of opportunity exists immediately after the memorandum is issued. And that's what Agricultural Retailers and the Fertilizer Institute did And congratulations to them for jumping on this quickly and going to court and saying to OSHA, you, the agency, needed to have gone through rulemaking. You can't just use memoranda instead. That period arguably is within 59 days of the issuance of a memorandum. Right. And, And the other opportunity, if you miss that window, is not as good. But certainly when an employer is faced with an inspection and a citation and issues a notice of contest that it wants to contest that citation, then it could say at that juncture, we don't think that OSHA is enforcing this under an interpretation that is bona fide because that interpretation was issued uh, with a failure to go through proper rulemaking. I think that that's a substantially weaker position because now you're essentially going to whether or not that interpretation is afforded properly, should be afforded deference by the courts. And it really matters less at that point whether or not there was a rulemaking procedure behind it as much as whether or not that is indeed the way the agency interprets the standard. And so I think that the better opportunity is clearly when the rule is promulgated.
1: I agree with you. The, the issues now are going to be when a rule well, when one of these memos is promulgated First of all, they're going to have an internal process now to say, can we issue this memo? And they're probably going to go through the same analysis we would and say
0: In light of this case.
1: Yes, did we did we have a previous position on this and is it a change? Hopefully they'll go through that process. That's what's going to happen if it gets to the national office. Like I said, we could still have various area offices just off doing their own thing in their own little kingdoms and seeing how it works out, and then just letting it go through the litigation process at a local level without looking for some sort of national standards, and it's going to be up to the employer community to bring this up to the highest level to make sure that there is uniform interpretation. Future rulemakings are going to be challenging with the agency, if some means allowed to go forward with any rulemakings, uh, to attempt to make it ambiguous as to exactly what it's requiring so that it doesn't get pinned down in a preamble that it's not going to be happy with two or five years later.
0: Uh, So that's a good point, Larry. In addition to when OSHA issues interpretive memoranda, that creates a window of opportunity for employers to challenge that memorandum if they believe it should have gone through rulemaking. But you're right. When OSHA issues future rulemakings, standards, regulations, the employer community needs to actively participate in that process to make sure ambiguities are addressed and cleared up. Maybe there's nobody in the country that's better at that than you, Larry, in looking at draft rules and pointing out that OSHA, instances where OSHA has not really thought of the practical implications of the rule as they've drafted it. And that's an example of an ambiguity as well.
1: Well, thank you for that compliment. So just so we're all clear, this is only applicable to OSHA standards not, for example, record-keeping rules, so we can anticipate that at least for the time being there's the potential for continuing abuse, uh, not primarily in this administration, but going forward into the future over reinterpretations of OSHA record-keeping rules uh, or anything else that falls within the, the APA rulemaking process rather than the OSHA rulemaking process.
0: So. That's a practical discussion of what employers should do going forward in light of this decision. Uh, one more practical thing that employers can do: uh, link up on our Twitter account at Rathmanish. Uh, listen, you can catch this program as a podcast or uh, on our website at cagelaw slash osha three uh, zero three zero, and forward that link on to colleagues who may have missed it. Or if they prefer it as a podcast, I listen to the OSHA three zero three zero on my ride home from work uh, after it's published after we do the webinar. Uh, It comes up as a podcast about two days later, as well as uh, the date on which it's published on our website. And to make sure you're connected on LinkedIn, both not only to Monash Rath, but to our uh, group's LinkedIn page, which is called the Keller and Heckman Workplace Safety and Health Page. A lot of opportunities to stay current on OSHA law, uh, and we're grateful to you for participating in the OSHA 3030 community. Uh, The next one we've scheduled for 1 p.m., so book it on your calendars. 1 p.m. March 22, uh, and you can find out future dates uh, for OSHA's 3030 at slash OSHA 3030. We also have uh, Tosca 3030 going on the Wednesday prior to that for those of you who deal with uh, Toxic Substances uh, Control Act type compliance issues. With that said, thank you all very much. Larry Halperin, thank you for participating. For those of you who have questions about this subject or any other, you can reach us. At, uh, at the following contact points at any time. We love chatting about this stuff, so reach out to us. And if you're in town, please look us up. Uh, if we're not in the Keller and Heckman studio, then we're downstairs at our offices and would love to see you. Hope all is well and look forward to catching up with you next month. Until then, stay safe.